know it's going to be kind of weird because it's just a small group of us here. I'm going to teach like I normally do so we can get the recording. Um, but you can always speak up, Cindy. You can always speak up. You, a couple of times you've stopped and you were like, I don't get, you know, and Joseph did that one time too. And I'm like, I love that because it's awesome. It, especially that week that Joseph did it because I was like, he's paying attention. I know I don't know what that means. No, it was great. He was paying, I didn't care. I don't care. Hey, I loved it. Hey, bring it on. All right, 2 Corinthians 13. <laughs> Get your Bible out and you'll know. 2 Corinthians 13, here we are. We're finishing up Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the second one. Many believe there, there was other letters. This one in particular has to do with Paul sharing with them once again that he has a heart for them, that he cares for them, and that even though these false apostles have come in after him to kind of discredit his ministry, Paul's saying, hey, look, I care about you, and I've shown that by my witness, by my being with you, spending 18 months to plant this church. Paul didn't stay that long anywhere else. He stayed that long because there was opposition and because God had shown him, hey, even though it seems like there's nobody here that believes in me, I have many people in this city that already believe, and I have many that will believe because of their testimony. So keep going. And so because he heard from the Lord, he had this ability to stay throughout lots of trials and persecution. And so Paul, in this last chapter, he basically says what parents say to their kids when the parents aren't home, and they call home and go, hey, are you guys doing everything you're supposed to? And of course, they know they're not. And so he says to them in verse 1 of chapter 13, he says, this will be the third time that I'm coming to you. And by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. He says, I have told you before, and I tell you again, I'm telling you ahead of time, as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before, and to all the rest, that if I come again, and he's planning on it, that I will not spare. In other words, I'm coming to bring the rod. I will correct those who are unruly. There will be a comeuppance. There will be consequences. And so he says that. He says, verse 3, Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you, for though he was crucified in weakness, speaking of Jesus, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. So he says, essentially, if I come again and I'm planning on it, I will not spare. I will not come in weakness like I did before. I'm coming, so you may as well get ready. And so in verse 3, these people have been speaking against Paul and so because of that, Paul's people in Corinth, they are starting to doubt that Paul is an apostle, and so they're seeking proof from Paul, hey, prove to us that you're actually an apostle of God, that Jesus sent you. Because these Judaizers is what they were called, that was the term in the day, these people would come in and they would come after Paul, and of course, they would only come when Paul wasn't there, mysteriously, they'd show up and they'd say, hey, We've got credentials from so-and-so that we're apostles. They called themselves super apostles. Like, hey, we're not only sent ones, but we're like the best sent ones. 
and they would come in, they'd, they'd wave these certifications around, these pieces of paper. Many times now we see a, a diploma or some sort of accredited, you know, something that says, hey, I'm, I'm it. And they would wave it around and say, hey, this is the proof that we are sent by God. And so they would see that and they go, well, pff, I mean, paper can't lie. They can't come up with these. Paul, where's your papers? Where's your credentials? What college did you go to? Who gives you the right to teach us? And so they go to him and they're like, hey, that, who does give him the right? And they start to doubt the apostle. And because of that, they doubt his message. And so Paul reminds them about the Christ who is in him in verse 4. He says, though he was crucified in weakness, and Paul's saying, because, even though I came to you in weakness the first time, Jesus, when he came in his first coming, he came in weakness too. That didn't discredit who he was. He came first and foremost to die for our sins. Paul says, I came to you in weakness, but that same Christ who I served, he lives still today according to the power of God who raised him from the dead to rule and reign in his majesty. So does Jesus' death or his weakness mean that he will not come again in power and judge his enemies? No. Because he was raised from the grave by the power of God, proving, 1 Corinthians 15 says, that proves that he, in fact, was the Savior. If Jesus came and he said all kinds of good stuff, and he was killed and he was buried, and he did not rise from the grave, what would that prove other than he was just a man like everyone else? He was not sent by God. But Jesus, because he was sent by God, we know that because he was raised from the dead. So Paul says... This is the Jesus who is in me. He's alive in me. I ask uh, Lucy this all the time. Where's Jesus at? And she says, he's alive. Now, we've told her that. Eventually, that thing that she believes, because I've told her, will be tested. Do you actually believe that Jesus is alive? Sometimes we kind of forget that, that we serve a God who died but was raised again, and he lives he sits at the right hand of God and he prays for us. If you want to see what he prays, read John chapter 17. He prays for the apostles. He prays for those who will believe based on their testimony. And then he prays for all those who will believe after that. So he's prayed specifically for you and I. And I don't know about you, but that, that's crazy to me because I wasn't alive when he was. So how can he pray for me other than the fact that he's still alive and that he was alive before creation even started? He's bigger than what we can even comprehend. So he came the first time, Jesus did, in weakness and in humility, but when he returns, he will come with the rod and he will deliver all those who are his people from oppression and he would take them to be with him. And I love that because until the day that we leave this earth, we will experience trial and tribulation, unfortunately. But God loves that because it's going to produce patience because our hope will not be in any of the things that disappoint us, whether it's people, whether it's circumstances, whether it's family, whether it's our job not being what we would want it to be. We can't hope in those things. And when we do, God will pull them out from under us so that we'll see that He can be hoped in and He will not disappoint us. He will divide when he returns between those who are his and those who are not. 
both groups will have different rewards. I say rewards with little quotes in it because for those who have lived righteously trusting in Jesus as their Savior and their life proves that out, there will be a reward. And for those who reject Him and disobey His word and and will not repent and turn to Him, guess what? There will be rewards for that as well. We call those consequences. There will be this eternal punishment, eternal separation from God. And what, what we don't understand on our side is that when people are eternally separated from God, God is giving them what they've shown that they wanted their whole life. I'd rather not accept forgiveness. I'd rather not have His grace. I'd rather be, yeah, do my own thing. And the Lord says, okay. And He gives us what we ask for. To do our own thing means to be separated from Him. And so there's rewards for that. Paul says to them in the second part of verse 4, We also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. So Paul's making a judgment on these Corinthians, the ones that know the Lord and the ones that don't. Now there's ones that know the Lord in there that are living disobedient toward him. They're saved as if by fire. They've still got some stuff that they're just allowing to continue to be in their sin. And so he says, I'd rather that you repent so I don't have to come to you strongly. But if you don't, I'm going to come and whip you. Now, he's not going to come in there and start whipping them, throw them over his knee and spank his hiney. You know, that, that's not what's going to go on. What Paul's going to come do is he's going to call a spade a spade. He's going to call them out because they refuse to repent. And he's doing that so that they'll repent. You know, sometimes... Uh, people come to us graciously and they go, hey, I've noticed this in your life. Maybe you need to deal with this. And we go, ah, no big deal. But Matthew 18 says that if you have a brother in sin or who's sinned against you, you owe it to that brother or sister in Christ to approach them one-on-one and to say, hey, you're living in sin here. What are you going to do about this? And if they refuse to repent and they keep coming to church, you have to deal with that. And how do you deal with it? Well, you take someone else along with you. Instead of doing it one-on-one, you go, hey, They're seeing it. I'm seeing it. How are we going to deal with this? And if they refuse to repent, even more so, you take it to the elders of the church. Next thing you know, you you send them out. Now, sometimes they won't come back before you even get to that step, unfortunately. But God desires repentance because our sin separates us from Him. And if there's anything allowed in our lives that keeps us separated from Him, it's not good for us. It's like continuing to drink poison. You know, nobody would do that, but... You know, keeping sin in your life is like drinking poison. Eventually, not only will it stunt your growth, but it will kill you. And so Paul says to them, uh, we will deal with you according to what you deserve so that God doesn't deal with you according to what you deserve. So in verse 2, Paul already said that he writes to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that when he comes again, he will not spare The idea is that he will not deal weakly with those who are continuing in disobedience, sowing discord, causing division, refusing to obey the simple commandments of God. See, here's the deal. No one sins unto themselves. No one. A lot of people say that. They say, well, if I'm living in sin, it's it's only hurting me, so leave me alone. But in the church, we are all joined together somehow by the Spirit of God, and we interlude with one, we interact with one another like a building built out of bricks. You build that building up, and it's all assembled. And we picture buildings, we picture a physical building, but the, the temple of God is built out of people, 
human souls that are knit together by the Spirit of God. And so as those bricks, each one of us is a brick in the wall and in the structure of the building, the temple of God. And when one brick has a broken piece in it, or one brick is shattered in the middle, it compromises the strength of the entire thing. And so Paul is telling them here, hey, we're going to deal with this for the integrity of the entire structure. If you've got a broken brick, you want to remove it, or at least try to patch it up and replace it with a new one. And so Paul says, hey, we need to let God make us new, and the way that we can do that is by making righteous judgment. Now, what is judgment? Paul's kind of making some strong statements here. He's saying, I'm going to come in and I'm going to judge. I'm going to deal with those who are disobedient and unruly. Well, as Christians, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to judge? And you guys say no. So you're probably saying that because of Matthew chapter 7. So turn there with me, because in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus spoke specifically about judgment. And he said in verse 1, probably the one you guys can tell me um, by memory. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. What does it say? It says, Judge not, lest ye also be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. He says in verse 3, though, if you continue on in the context, see, many people, they read that and they say, well, you can't judge me. You can't make a judgment about me. And what they're saying is you can't send me to hell by what you think about me. It doesn't matter what we think. And it's true. That is true. We cannot, by our judgment, by what we see in people, say, well, you're going to hell. And we don't get the final say. God does, right? He knows our hearts which is a good thing, and it's a scary thing because we know what's really in our hearts sometimes, and sometimes we don't realize that the heart is deceitfully wicked, that we've fooled ourselves even. So what it also says in verse 3, Jesus continues and he talks about judgment. He gives us the full realm of it. He says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? He says, we, we have a tendency to look at our brother and we, we see this little speck and we're like, man, that needs to be removed. He's got issues. But what we don't realize is we got a plank in ours and the idea is like this big two-by-four plank of lumber. Not just a little splinter or a sliver, but a plank of lumber. And if, how can you even see a speck in your brother's eye if you're trying to look through a plank of wood? You can't because sin blinds us, right? But what does he say in verse 4? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own. If you were laying down, getting ready to be worked on by a surgeon and you looked up and you saw him right before they put you out and your surgeon had a big old plank of wood in his eye, like a big old stick sticking out of it, would you be real confident in that surgeon doing a good job? No, you'd be fearful for your, you'd be like, get this thing off of me. This guy's not working on me. He can't even see. And so the idea is, is if, If God's going to work on us, and he's going to work on others through us, then what do we need to do to prepare to do that work? We need to let God remove the junk out of our own eyes. And sin blinds us. It's like having a plank in there. So he says in verse 5, hypocrite. And then he gives us instruction. This is instruction on how God wants us to deal with our brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, don't be a hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye. Now, we can't do this apart from the Lord doing it, right? 
let God remove the plank. And then as he removes the plank, then you will see clearly. That makes sense. That's not really deep. If God removes the stuff out of your eye, if you let him do it, then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So the instruction here is not to not judge, but it is to make a judgment, not one that sends them to hell or heaven. We don't get to do that. But to look at people and inspect the fruit that's coming from their lives. This is talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you will do that, here's what will happen. You'll be letting God change you and remove the sin from your own life so that you can help. Not so that you can whack them with the Bible, but so that you can let God consistently clean you. And as he consistently cleans you, it's not just for your sake, but it's also so that you can help the other people that have the same issues you do. And many times God will surround you with people that have struggled with the same things that you've struggled with. And so he says there, do not give what is, I'm not going to go on because that doesn't pertain to what we're talking about. He says, first remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So God wants to use us to heal others. And sometimes it's by healing them, by pointing out things in their life with humility, recognizing that God is the only one that caused you to be at the spot you're at now. So he says, in verse 4, excuse me, in chapter 7, verse 24 of John, he goes on and he says this, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Don't judge with your physical eye, and we have a tendency to do that. Here's the deal. Everybody is judging everybody. I'm walking through Walmart last night, and everybody, if you look at people's eyes, they're looking at each other, and sometimes you can even see the eye roll, like, I can't believe they're wearing that. You know, and I've been at Walmart, and I've thought the same thing. So I'm not saying I've never thought that, but we make judgments of, upon each other based on what we're wearing. We were in the money line, uh, and Kelly was going to exchange some clothes at Walmart. She bought some. She didn't like them. So we're in the line. Well, it's Sunday, or Saturday night, and there's a line of Mexican men in front of us. And the guy behind me, had a big old beard, didn't look like he showered in a week. And he goes, they're probably all sending money home. That was a judgment, right? He was making a judgment based on what he thought he was doing. Now, I'm going to say most of those guys probably don't have bank accounts. And so they're probably just cashing their check. They might be sending some home. I don't know. But the reality is, is that all I'm saying is he was making a judgment based on appearance. And God is not interested in our outward appearance. We spend so much time dealing with what we want others to perceive us as. And maybe you guys don't as much. I do. I stand in front of the mirror and I'm like thinking, you know, and maybe you do more, but everybody has something that they're like, I want this to look good or I, I want people to think this. And, you know, look at kids that play sports. I mean, you, we were talking that one day about how they get new uniforms every year and it's the same team. You know, if the kid doesn't grow, let's just have the same uniform again. But we want to look good. We want to have the right appearance. We want to be intimidating. You know, a team comes up and they all got new uniforms. Man, they're going to kill us. I'm not thinking that. I'm thinking if they got dirty uniforms, they, they're here to, to they're, they're not going to mess around. They're going to play hard. And so um, as Christians, are we supposed to make judgments? And I would say from that passage, according to the words of Jesus, no and yes. There are times that we're called to make judgments. There are times that we're not. And so 
Matthew 7 gives us that perspective. But we as people, I mean Americans, we have a tendency to focus on others' faults and others' shortcomings. Uh, I grew up in a family, we would leave people's houses and the whole way home, I can't believe so-and-so said this, or can you believe they did this, or whatever. But if you think about it, I mean, that's kind of what we do. We make judgments, and, and, and it's always, not always constructive. And so um, we need to be careful about that because these Judaizers, these false teachers, were making judgments about Paul. And because of that, the Corinthians began to make judgments about Paul. Some of them were probably making judgments about the Judaizers. And they were probably making judgments on each other. I mean, look at kids in a household, and they're always going, well, so-and-so's doing this, and we're not supposed to, or so-and-so's doing that, and we're not supposed to, right? And what happens is as they're making those judgments, most of the time they're doing it, so what? They're throwing dust up in the air so you don't see what they're doing. Hey, look over there, so-and-so's doing this. When in the meantime, they're doing the same thing, they just don't want you to see it. And we do that. You know, we, we try to point out others' faults so that we won't be as aware of our own. But Paul says this. He said he's coming, so get ready because judgment's coming. And he said in verse 1, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Well, what does that mean? Where does that come from? It's in quotes in my Bible. Is it yours? He says, By the word of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. My Bible has quotes around it, and so let's go to where it's quoting from. Paul's referencing Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 19. Now, some of you were probably in this in your devotional time this week, so I won't go too deep. I'm just kidding. I know I wasn't. But in Deuteronomy 19, this is the uh, thing that God set up for the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, it says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. He's talking about basically, if there's someone in your midst in Israel who commits a sin and only one person comes up to witness against him, then it's kind of a shaky thing. But if you have two or three people that witnessed it and they all give the same testimony, then it can be established that he did in fact do this. And so it says there in verse 16, if a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men, both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry... In other words, they'll put the big lamp on them and ask them the questions like they do in all the cop shows. And as they do that, indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. So say a guy comes in and in those days for adultery, they would bury you and they would stone, they would stone you and then they would bury you in the town square as an example which seems pretty intense, right? I mean, if that was the case now, there'd be people buried all over in town square. There wouldn't be no room for picking on square. There wouldn't be no room for any of the stuff we have. But what they would do is they would say, okay, so-and-so caught you, you were in adultery. Well, if there was one person, that doesn't really say anything. But if there was two or three, then, then that would be the case. And if it was a true witness, that there would be consequences. But if there was not a true witness, there was a false witness against that person, 
the punishment that would have been given to the one who had been falsely witnessed against goes on the one who is the false witness. So what does that do? That causes us all of a sudden to want to go, you know what? I'm going to make sure this thing's true before I start spreading it or telling people that can punish them, you know? And, and it's important that we recognize that because I bet maybe our kids would be less likely to blame each other and we would be less likely to blame people without checking out the matter deeply if we knew that if they weren't really guilty of it, that we would get their punishment that they deserved. And, and it just causes us to really consider and to look deeply or just to pray for them and, and hopefully get them to, to turn around from their, their wicked ways. But Paul says this, he says, by the word of two or three mouths, uh, every word shall be established. So if I come to you, Paul says, and three people say, hey, you've been doing this and causing division, you're going to get it. But if not, and they're the ones that are guilty of false witness, then they're going to get the punishment. He says, hey, I'm coming to clean house and I'm going to deal with all those who are causing problems. And we know the Corinthian church was a church full of problems. But then he says this, and I think this is really where it turns the corner. After talking about this all, you know, testimony of witnesses, and then talking about those who have come and charged Paul falsely and said he's not an apostle, he says, why don't we get this right? Our job as believers is to be examined by the Lord. And we spend all this time throwing stones at other people, but he says, how are you doing in your own personal walk? He says, verse 5, examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith or not. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? He says, of course, unless indeed you are disqualified, meaning that you fail to pass the test. He says, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified, that we are not those who fail the test. So what he's saying here is he says, whether, rather than examining everyone else to see if they're the problem, why don't you spend some time examining yourselves as to whether you are in the faith or not? Many times things happen, whether they're at work, whether they're in my own house, and I get upset at everyone else and I start blaming people. But there have been many times, most of them, where if I will actually humble myself and step back and say, what's going on here? and I'll examine my own heart through the lens of the Lord, I'll see that I'm actually the problem. And when I pray about the situation, God doesn't change the situation. Instead, He changes me. And what's crazy is that once He changes me, all of a sudden that big old problem isn't that big of a problem anymore because the problem's gone. And so Paul's saying to them, you, you guys have tons of problems, and every church does. But if you guys would all individually start examining your own lives as to whether you're actually in the faith or not, you might find out that everyone's the problem. And that if we would all focus on the Lord and live a life that's pleasing to Him, allow Him to test us, many of the problems will go away. We want to be our brother's keeper first and deal with ourselves last. And what the Lord says is maybe we need to deal with our own sin first and then deal with others as he cleanses us first. And I like this because he says, examine yourself, not to see if you're in sin, but to see if you're actually in the faith. Am I really what I say I am? 
Am I really who I portray myself to be? We like images. We like perceptions to be right. He says, test yourself. So how do we test ourselves to see if we're in the faith? That's a tough one, right? Because we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're where we're, we need to be and we're not. I mean, so what do we do? Well, in 1 John chapter 4, the Apostle John writes, and he says this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. He says this. He says, if someone says, I love God, which we know tons of people that do, does that mean that they love God? No. And of course, in our minds, I don't know about you guys, but in my mind, I'm all of a sudden thinking about other people. You know, right? But what he's saying here is examine ourselves through this grid. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So avoid the temptation to think about someone else and stop and put yourself through this grid. Because if you will do that, God will reveal to you where you're actually at. He says, examine ourselves. So this commandment we have from him, meaning from Jesus, he who loves God must also love his brother. Now, we may not feel like loving our brother, but that doesn't matter. God doesn't say, hey, obey me if you feel like it. He says, you're mine. Here's the commandment I give you. Love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So do it anyway, whether you feel like it or not. This is hard because it calls for submission, calls for surrender. Because if we would actually try to do that, I think many times we would get to that spot and go, God, I got to be honest with you, I can't do it. And he'd say, I know, but I can through you. And that's when he changes us again. Not to focus outwardly, but to focus inwardly on ourselves. He says in in chapter 5, verse 1, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, meaning is the Messiah, the Lord who came to save, is born of God. Everyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, is born of God. Born again, right? John chapter 3. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And when you are born again, you will be new. 2 Corinthians 5.20, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new and are new. So we have to walk in that. He says, and everyone who loves him, meaning God, who begot also loves, excuse me, everyone who loves him, who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. In other words, you will love the brethren. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. I love this because he says we will love the children of God if we love God first and we will keep his commandments as a result. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and notice what it says here, his commandments are not burdensome. Have you ever tried to keep the commandments of God and they are a burden? Me too. But he says this, if we love God, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and they won't be burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So if God is in us, Paul said, God's in me, 
then we'll be able to overcome. We'll do what he says even though we don't feel like it. And it won't be a burden because we'll be doing it out because we realize how much he's loved us. And I wrote that. After examining yourself, if you pass the test, first of all, be humble. Recognize that that's evidence of Christ in you. But if you don't pass the test, maybe there's some examination needs to be there. Maybe you need to rededicate your life to the Lord. Maybe you need to surrender really for the first time. The only reason that you passed any test is because Christ is in you and he's changing you from glory to glory. There's no need to boast, but only to worship the one who's doing it. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul wrote that. He said, God is faithful who called you and he also will do it. God called you. He's given you something impossible to do, but he's going to be the one to do it. So then Paul goes on and he prays for the Corinthians and he lets them know what he's praying for them. And I have to tell you, the other night as I was studying this, I stopped and I, I said, I don't know that I've prayed this for our church, for the people that are in it. So I went through my list of all the people that come, the ones that haven't been for a while. And I prayed for every single person. I prayed this. I said, I want to pray what Paul did. So I pray to God, Paul says in verse 7, that you do no evil. Not, not for the sake that we should appear approved or those who are real apostles, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. Paul wants them in the eyes of the Lord to do no evil. He says in verse 8, For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. And this also we pray, here's the second thing he prays, that you may be made complete complete. Paul's prayer was that we would do no evil. Paul's prayer was that the Corinthians would do no evil, but his prayer goes for the church, that we would do no evil, not less evil. Well, many of us would settle for that, and I think there have been times where I've settled, hey God, I'm not doing nearly as much evil, and he's pleased in that because that's evidence of Christ in us, but his prayer for the Corinthians and for us is that we would do no evil, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth, if we are of God. Then he says, verse 9, For we are glad when we are weak and you are made strong. And this also we pray that you may be made complete. What does that mean, to be complete? You ever heard people say that when they fall in love? Like, you complete me. You know, oh, this girlfriend, she's, just com she's everything that I'm not. She completes me, man. I'm just so in love. Well, I don't know what kind of person they're dating, but most, you know, like my wife, she completes me in many ways, but many times we actually bring more problems to each other than we do blessings. So what, what way do we become complete? Well, to become complete means to be mature. You know, Cindy, you're a, you're a plant grower. You, you know, like, that's your deal, apparently. I didn't even know that about you. And so making these plants complete or brought to maturity means taking anything out of the garden that hinders them from growing. That means putting them in a space where they have room to grow. Who knew? Bigger pots. The plants are huge. I didn't even know. I don't know how big an elephant ear gets. But when those plants come to maturity, they'll put off little sprouts and they'll bloom and they'll be beautiful. And they'll bring enjoyment to everyone who sees them, right? They put off oxygen so we can breathe. But many times as believers, we don't come to maturity because of either sin that we harbor 
or because we're not in the right ground we need to be planted in, or because we're not getting the right nutrients, because we're not being fed or feeding ourselves. And so God wants us to be mature. But some of the ways that we can become mature is not necessarily by doing anything different, but by submitting ourselves to the Lord and saying, Lord, examine my heart. See if there's some things in me, I'm sure, that are keeping me from going because my flesh is crying out and saying, stop making me do this stuff, but my spirit wants to grow closer to you, Lord. How do I do that? Lord, I want to go hard for you, but I feel like every time I stand up and try to do something that I'm hindered. It's like I'm trying to jog with a backpack full of rocks on. And the Lord's saying, take off the backpack. Or even more so, you can't. Let me take off the backpack. Let me examine you. Let me point out the things that need to go. Rather than you just stripping everything away, let me take out the things that are stopping you from serving me. So he prays that they would do no evil, that they'd be removed from sin, and he prays that they would be made complete or brought to maturity. Paul knows this, that sin that is allowed or tolerated in the life of a believer will stunt our growth and even endanger our lives as believers. That We won't have a testimony. Sin causes blindness, deafness, and paralysis. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that sounds like poison. If you drink poison, there's a big warning, the yuck label with the big frowny face. And it basically is saying, if you continue, if you put this into you, it will cause there to be blindness, deafness, and paralysis. The person will want to follow and obey the Lord and at the same time wonder why they're not able to get up and go do it. So Paul prays for their activities to change, that they would do no evil, not less but no, and he prays for their spiritual growth that they might be brought to full maturity. And he prays for these things. He doesn't harp on the Corinthians. And so I've kind of decided in my own personal walk that rather than trying to cause people to change, that I will pray more than I speak. And you can do that. Uh, Pray more than you say you're going to do something. Pray, Lord, I want to do this. Help me to do it. And he'll change you, I promise. He's done that for me this week. Only God can cleanse our habits and give us a whole heart that longs to serve and obey him. It's a heart issue, not a situational issue. Temptation will always be there. The only difference between the one who sins and the one who chooses not to is the love that motivates them. So he continues on and he says this. Verse 9. No, verse 10. Therefore, he says, I write these things being absent from you, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for strengthening and not for destruction. He wants to build us up, not to tear us down. So he says, I want to say these things to you before I come to you, so that when I come to you, we can just enjoy. I don't want to come to you. I mean, how many parents, other than the ones that probably don't need to have their kids in their house, how many parents delight to punish their kids? There are those out there, I get that. I don't want to punish my child. I only get so much time with her anyway. I want to enjoy. I I always tell her, if you will obey, we'll both get to enjoy our time together. And most of the time, she does good. But there's a big percentage of the time that she refuses. She says, not your will, Daddy, but my will. And that's when we don't get to enjoy one another. So Paul says, uh, 
I don't want to bring the rod. I would rather just enjoy you. Verse 11, he says, finally, brethren, farewell. And then he says these things. He's reemphasizing everything that he wanted them to get from this letter. It's like when somebody says, if you don't remember anything I've said, remember this. That's what Paul's saying. He says, finally. And 13 chapters, is that's a finally. Like, okay, here we go. He's closing up. He says, become complete. In other words, become mature. Be of good comfort. Be comforted by the Lord. He started the letter that way. He says, be of one mind. He's saying, have unity amongst the brethren. And then he says, live in peace. And as you do this, the God of love and peace will be with you. I love that. If you will do these things, the the God of love and peace will be with you. God promised us his presence when Jesus said, he said, go ye therefore and make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He said, teaching them all the things that I've taught you. He says, and lo, he gave a promise with the instruction. He said, I am with you even until the end of the age. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. We'd be a holy handshake or a holy, holy hug. All the saints greet you, all those who are with Paul. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit with you be with you all. Amen. So what does he say there? He says, the grace of Jesus, the love of God, meaning the God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you. The triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in his blessing. But notice also what Paul had said. He said in verse 11, become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace. And as you do this, the God of love and peace will be with you. And I love that because it's just like what Jesus said. I just quoted it earlier. There's this instruction, go therefore and make disciples, baptize them, teach them all the things that I've taught you. But then he gives instruction with a promise, and I will be with you. These things will be impossible without me, but I promise to be with you as you do them. So where are you at today? Are you of the practice of letting God examine your heart? Do you read verses in Scripture and think of other people all the time? Or are you letting God examine you personally? Because if you'll let him examine you personally, what you'll find is that he will free you from sin. He will free you from guilt and shame. He will free you from comparing yourself with other people and trying to measure up, which you'll never be able to do because there's always somebody better than you. Or comparing yourself with somebody who's not as far along or who's not a believer, who you'll always be better than in God's eyes, meaning that you'll be freed from sin because of his grace, not because you're better than them. There will always be somebody that you feel like you compare yourself to to make yourself feel better, but it won't make you any better. And so God says through the pen of Paul here, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. What does it mean to be in the faith? You know, does it mean that I repented of my sins 10 years ago and now I'm the same, I haven't really changed at all? Or does it mean in the faith mean that you are currently walking in the faith in Jesus? Because currently walking in the faith in Jesus means that you repented of your sins, you've been born again, you've continued to ask God to change you, you've continued to obey Him, and when you can't, confessing to the Lord, I can't do this, change me so I can, 
continually running yourself through that grid. And what you'll find is if you'll do that, God will give you joy. He will give you peace. And not only that, but he will be with you. Many people that believe, you know, they'll, they'll quote that verse that says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Well, but here's the deal. Are we for God or not? Because if God is for us, then no one can be against us. But if we walk out from the umbrella of his protection and we do things that we ought not and we're disobeying God, he's not going to be protecting us. Not because he doesn't like us anymore. He loves us. He wants us to repent. But because he cannot bless sin. He cannot. But we have grace. God gives us this patience and this love and he never forsakes us. He always calls us to repentance once again when we're in sin. And so we have this responsibility to take him up on it. Lord, I messed up again. Please help me. I don't want to be found not in the faith. Lord, keep me from falling away. You know, I believe that when God saves you, you are sealed for heaven. But I also believe that there's a responsibility that we have to keep in his love, to stay in his presence, to not flee away and start serving idols and, and, and doing all these things that, that do not bless his name. So all that said, Father, we thank you for the book of 2 Corinthians. We thank you that Paul warned them that he was on his way and there would be some correction. But we also thank you for the kindness and the love that Paul portrayed when he basically said, I, I don't want to do any of this. I would rather you just repent and that I come to you and experience the grace of God on your life to see the fruit that comes forth from you trusting in him. And Father, as you produce fruit in our lives, Lord, we, we really do want there to be rewards in heaven that we could gain by being obedient, by blessing our neighbor, by loving them as we love ourselves, by letting you continually change us. And Father, we want those rewards so we can throw them at your feet and give you all the glory in heaven. Father, help us to finish well. Thank you for Paul's testimony to the Corinthians. Thank you that he was not afraid to call them out on their sin, that he was bold. But thank you also that he had the heart of our Savior who didn't want to judge, who didn't want to correct, who didn't want to separate the people from you. He just wanted to see them repent and turn and enjoy your presence, Lord. And so, Father, we just uh, we love you. We thank you for instruction from Paul, and we thank you for loving us. We pray that you'd help us to live victorious lives. Lord, may we be those who would let you examine us. In Jesus' name, amen.